0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. There's a journalist that recently wrote what she called the friendship files. And I came across this series. It was a series of, I think, just over 100 articles. It was an incredible series. And in it, she interviewed... It was something like, I think it was a hundred different friend groups, particularly, usually like a a couple of best friends, and asking about their story. And there were always unique nuances to every friend, what it looked like for them to live out their friendship, how they became friends. And uh, I was really kind of amused by this series. It was really interesting and um, at points moving and uh, really beautiful. One in particular caught my attention It was a story of these two guys that became best friends, a guy guy by the name of Gabe and the other guy by the name of Andy. And I just want to share with you their their friendship story. I found it very inspiring and, and interesting. Gabe and Andy both lived in the same city. They lived in the city of Nashville. They were both musicians, and they got to know each other because They went on tour with, uh, they're in different bands, but they went on tour together at Christmas time for a couple weeks, doing like a Christmas uh, tour. And over that, the first time they, they did that, they, you know, in very close quarters and constantly with each other, and they really hit it off and realized, wow, we're, we have so much in common. They enjoyed being together. They both have kind of a funny, quirky personality, and they laughed together. And at the end of that tour, of that week or two, they're like, well, we both live in the city. There's no reason why we can't hang out. And they said, yeah, yeah, we should hang out. I don't know if you've ever said that to someone like, hey, why don't we hang out more? We should hang out more. And uh, like happens to so many of us, they did nothing about it, and a year went by, and they found themselves on the same tour again. And Gabe and Andrew were like, hey, man, wow, it's so good to see you. And it's like they picked right up where they left off, and they, they uh, had such a great time together, and they said at the end of that time, hey, we live in the same city. There's no reason why we can't hang out together. Oh, uh, we should hang out. And he's like, yeah, we should hang out. And a year passed, and they did nothing. The same thing happened according to what they said, the exact same thing happened for 14 years. They said their friendship was like a camp friendship. Like they'd have this like close, close proximity for like a week or two, and then they'd have no contact all year. And at the end of the time when they were two, they, they were like, no, no, seriously, though, this year we should hang out. And they never did anything about it. So after 14 years, they're like, okay, this is ridiculous. We're definitely going to hang out. And they said they started to make plans, and that's when they realized they had recently moved within a mile and a half of each other. They lived a mile and a half away, and they're like, this is ridiculous. And so they're like, all right, we are, we are both going to make this commitment. Once a week, no matter what, we are going to walk towards each other. You're going to leave your house. I'm going to leave my house. We're going to walk towards each other, and at very least, we're going to stop in the middle. And if nothing else, we're just going to give each other a high five. Can we at least do that? And they're like, okay, all right, we're going to do that. So they did it, the first week, they set aside that time, they both left their house, they walked 30 minutes, met in the middle, gave each other a high five, stood there and talked for about 15, 20 minutes and then went home. They're like, we did it. Second week, they did it again. Third week, they did it again. They kept doing it, doing it, their other friends are watching this absurd ritual of walking 30 minutes to high five. Why they couldn't just talk on the phone, I don't know, okay? But this was their rhythm, and over time, the high-five kind of morphed, and they had like a rhythm to it. They'd see each other, and they'd go like this, and give each other the high-five. And they would keep walking up, clap, snap, high-five. It became such a thing that on the anniversary Of their first high five they had done it successfully for a year on the anniversary of their high five all the rest of their friends joined them and split up into two groups one at Andy's house one at Gabe's house and the entire group of friends walked towards the middle got into a line like a wrecked soccer league and just high-fived each other down the line and then went back home they did this for successfully for a year then they did it successfully for two years then three years Then four years, five years, six years, over the course of six years, they only missed a handful of weeks, like with vacations. It became so ingrained in their friendship. And it became a time like there were times that they didn't really have time, they just high fived each other and walked home. But most of the time, they'd stop and they'd talk and get caught up. And they got so ingrained in each other's lives that actually, one of their daughters called the other guy Uncle Five. Like, that's how well. They knew each other. Okay, it became so ingrained in their lives. Okay, six years they did this. But about that time of the the middle of the sixth year, Gabe suddenly had to go to the hospital. And he had contracted this really unique type of um, brain infection. And it completely wiped out his short-term memory he couldn't remember anything gabe couldn't remember uh, names of people didn't know what had happened didn't remember anything of his recent life and his wife is there he's in the hospital day after day week after week they're trying to figure out and try to turn things around and andy now his best friend being in the hospital he would go and sit in the hospital with his friend gabe to relieve his wife, so she could go home and take care of the kids. Well, the first time Andy went to the hospital, he sat with Gabe, and Gabe's laying there in the hospital bed, and IV hooked up and everything. And and Gabe's, you know, he asked Gabe, hey, do you, do you know who I am? And um, Gabe's like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't know who you are. And he said, if I, if I said uh, high five, does that mean anything to you? He said, oh, I'm so sorry, I, don't, I just can't remember anything right now. And so Andy's like, that's all right, man. I'm just, just know that I'm here and I love you. Well, a little while later, um, Gabe just slowly swings his, his legs out of the hospital bed and he says, hey, I'm going to shuffle down the hall, I got to use the, the restroom. And he, he grabs his IV pole and he kind of just shuffles down the hallway and Andy says, look, I'll be here, but here's what I want to do. On the way back, I'm going to give you a high five, is that okay? And Gabe said, all right, yeah, sure, that's fine. So he does what he needs to do and he's coming back down the hall and Andy comes out of the room and he's standing there and he sees Gabe like they'd done at this point hundreds of times. But this time the context is not somewhere in the middle of their neighborhood outside, it's in a hospital room. And this time Gabe's in a hospital gown and has his IV and he starts walking towards Andy. And Andy looks at Gabe walking there in his hospital robe and just as he gets there, Gabe just as they get right to each other, Gabe moves his hand off the IV pole and goes. And in the article, Andy said, I just started weeping. And I asked Gabe, I said, Gabe, why did you do that? He's like, I don't even know. It, just, it's my, it was my reflex. It was just what I knew to do. And slowly Gabe has been regaining his, his memory and slowly it's coming back and even in the article they're joking about how you know, they would kind of mess with him that he didn't have a short-term memory. Apparently Gabe's wife tried to convince him that his favorite type of movie was Hallmark movies and Gabe was really kind of confused. No, honey, this is the type of movie, I'm just watching this for you. Like, all right, I don't remember, but okay. But what that taught them is that deep, rich, committed friendship. It runs down deeper into our souls than maybe we even realize. You know, so often we look at friendship and we just see it as just kind of an extra you can add into your life. It's just kind of one of those luxuries that if you have time for and can fit it in or maybe in the right season of life, you can figure out how to put it into your life. But... Man, what the Bible's expectation of friendship, what the Bible teaches about friendship, it's something so profound that God uses in our lives. And, you know, we, 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 I think we hear a story like that about committed friendships, like people who say, look, no matter what, no matter what happens through the highs and the lows of your life i'm going to walk through you I'll walk through with with you no matter whether you recognize me or not whether all the things we used to have in our friendship are gone or not i'm going to walk with you through friendship i i think i think we long for that i think we appreciate that i think we value that i think we hear that and we're like wow yes that's what it's supposed to be about and yet we often and i think in a way and maybe maybe you'd agree with this too, it seems like our culture is getting worse and worse at committing to each other. We we have greater and greater reluctance to commit in relationships, but that's the foundation of real true relationship. I mean, that's why marriage begins with a commitment. I mean, a marriage commitment is not simply like, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna be happy about being around you for the rest of my life. That's not what marriage is. That's not the beauty of marriage. And ironically, as we're longing for those kinds of committed, beautiful relationships we become like even more hesitant to commit to those relationships. And why is there that paradox in us when we can simultaneously lift up man-committed relationships, whether marriage or friendship or whatever that relationship, that kind of I am committed to you no matter what, while we long for that, why are we then so reluctant to make even the smallest commitment? Like, yes, I'll be at that social gathering rather than just... I might be there. Let me just see if anything else more desirable comes up or let me just make sure I still feel like going the day of. Like what's holding us back from taking those committed steps? And I think you can boil it down. It's not that complicated. It's very simply, it's fear. But the Bible and the Lord knows us so deeply that it speaks right to this idea of fear. Here's what it says. I want you to open with me to 1 John chapter four. We're gonna start in verse 11, 1 John chapter four. We've been working through this passage over the last couple of weeks, and now we're gonna pick it up at verse 11. Here's what it says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is such a great summary of verse for this whole section. It starts by calling us beloved. We're the ones loved by God. And here's how it frames how we love one another. In the same way that God loves us and knowing that God loves us, out of that place of how loved we are, we love each other. This is the framework for what it means to show love in our friendships. It starts by knowing and pushing into how loved we are by God. In the same way that we're loved by God, that overflows into love for one another. And then it says, since we're loved by God, we ought to love one another. I want to hang on that section of the verse and I want to drill down into it for just a second. When it says you and I ought to love one another, the English word there for ought doesn't carry the same force as it does in the original Greek. Because when I hear the word ought, I think of ought as like, it's kind of an ideal. It's like best practices. It's like, look, you should do your best to do this, but if you can't do it, that's understandable. For example... I recently read that you ought to change your windshield wipers every six to 12 months. I don't change my windshield wipers every six to 12 months. They make a terrible sound going across my windshield when it rains, okay? and. When I think of ought, I don't know who they they are that's trying to tell us to change our windshield wipers. Probably the windshield wiper company is telling us to change our windshield wipers every six to 12 months. But when I think of ought, I think of it like that. We ought to change our windshield wipers every six to 12 months, but it's not like really that terrible if you don't. Like if you still have the same windshield wipers on month 13, it's not like automatically the next time it rains, you're gonna careen into a telephone pole. I mean, it's not automatically that. It's just best practices in the same way you apparently you and I ought to have two to three cups of vegetables every day that's a lot like that means like vegetables for breakfast too okay I'm not doing it at breakfast okay I'm not going to just start carving broccoli into my Cheerios that's too much I draw the line okay two to three cups of vegetables that's a lot of salad all right We ought to do that. It's kind of like it's this, we probably should. You're not going to fall apart if you don't. That's how we interpret ought. That is not how this word operates in the ancient Greek. This word ought is the same word that's used for owed. Like if you owe a debt, it's the same word that means like, Um, It it is an obligation. It's not just a, hey, it's probably a good idea if. It's the same word for obligation. Let me show you another passage where this same word is used in the context of how we love each other. Go to, um, let me just read it to you actually, Romans 13, 7 through 7 and 8. Look at what, what Paul says. So we're reading what John says, but this is what Paul says. He says, pay to all what is owed. There's the same word. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you owe something to someone, pay it. You know, if you owe taxes, pay it. You know, if you owe a debt, pay it. And in the same way, don't, don't have anything outstanding that you owe. And then he applies that to love. The same thing that we, the, the same thing that we're told, um, and the, the same verb that's told us to repay a debt, that obligation is the same word used here in Romans by Paul and used by John in 1 John about loving one another. We're bound. Think of it like this. When it talks about how we love each other, Christian, that's not a suggestion. That's not a like, hey, this is extra credit. That's not a like, look, do your thing as a Christian and if you can do extraordinary acts of love, like bonus points. This is according to scripture. This is because of how God has loved us, this is then the the necessary outflow of that to one another. It's not an option. it's it's said in so many different ways in this text. One one of the ways we talked about earlier is we're born of God. It's like when when we put our faith in Jesus, it's like we become the children of God. We're born again, and God is love. And so the, the family resemblance we have to God, that common family attribute is love. We say, man, love is not an option. That is we owe it to one another is kind of the way that it's put it. So we're, we're bound to loving each other. That's the force of this. And the way that we do that is we under, as we understand how he's loved us, that then drives and overflows how we love one another. Okay, look what he says. I want you to jump down. Oh, what, what, he says more about this. I want you to jump down to verse 17. Let's look about how he loves us. Look at this. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. Here's, he starts with this. How has love been completed with us? He says, well, we have confidence one day. This is how God's love is for us. We have confidence one day when we stand before God. Let me think about that for a second. One day, the Almighty God of the universe, you will stand, I will stand in his presence. I mean, there is the word intimidating was made for that moment. You're standing before the one that's actively not only invented you, but holding your molecules together. And yes, it'll be awe-striking. But also on that holy God is the determination of our eternity. And will we stand there with confidence or fear? How Jesus put it is like the storm of God's wrath. Are we standing on the rock or on sand? Are we on a foundation we're confident in or on a shaky, sinking foundation? When we stand before God, if He were to ask us, why should I let you into heaven for eternity? Do I have confidence? Or do I have fear? Fear would be like, well, I hope I've been good enough. I mean, I tried to go to church some, you know, I prayed some, I did the best I can. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I've done everything that I could. I try to be nice to people and loving to people and have integrity. And, and you know, I, I, look, I, I certainly have messed up some, but I, I hope I've done enough. Man, if that is where we're at as far as standing before God, we are standing on a, a shaky foundation, sinking sand. But man, God's love is what gives us confidence. Because here's what we know. It's not just that he says, well, look, I, I love you enough to just kind of overlook your flaws. It's not that. It's that he loved us so much that God the Father sends God the Son, his only Son, Jesus Christ, His the greatest possible treasure, the, the most unimaginable sacrifice sent Jesus for us. And the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was not just to be a teacher and a rabbi to give us good tips on how to live. He came for the purpose of dying, for being stripped and beaten and whipped And having to carry his cross up a hill having nails driven into his hands and feet and a crown of thorns on his head and to hang on a cross as a spectacle for all those who walk by to see he came with that end in mind why because jesus who is perfect takes all of our sin past present and future takes all of our sin takes it all on himself and then absorbs all of the wrath of God on himself so that when he dies and when he rises again on the third day all punishment and wrath for your sin and my sin has been completely exhausted on the person of Jesus and so then all that God has left because his wrath and anger and punishment has been exhausted on Jesus, all he has left for you is his loving fatherhood. That's what his love is for you. And so when we stand before God one day, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? We have confidence, and we could say something like, well, if it was up to me, I wouldn't make it. But it's because of Jesus who saved me, who rescued me, that all of my sins had been washed away and my sin was put on Jesus and his righteousness was put on me. That's the kind of love that God has for us. He says how, now watch this. He says how he is, so are we in this world. Now what does that mean? Let's keep going and let's read two more verses and see what he means by this. Let's pick it up in verse 18 and we'll read 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We love, look at this, it's so important. We love because he first loved us. His completed love in us casts out fear we don't walk along in a relationship with God yes we are awestruck by his power and beauty and creativity I mean we we can't even believe the immensity of who God is but we don't walk in fear as if my performance God do do you really love me this week because I've kind of been a wreck this week do you still love me no we don't walk in that fear God, am I living up to what the expectations you have on me? No, we don't walk in just trying to clamor and and grab and and claw our way to get God to approve us. No, no, we walk in his love because his love casts out all fear. See, fear and love, they don't commingle well. In fact, love casts out fear. It expels fear fear away. True, completed love means that I go into God's presence and God has become the safe place that I run to. How many times does scripture, especially the Psalms, talk about God is the strong tower to which I run for safety. God is my refuge. God is my strength. Under his wings, I find refuge. No, I no longer have any fear. I run to him because I have all of this beautiful acceptance and I've been known by God and I'm valued by God and I'm protected by God. And so all of that love that he dumps down on me because Jesus has satisfied that wrath for me, I run to him and God is my safe place. So that one day when I get to heaven, It's not gonna be some strange, otherworldly place that I don't recognize as if it's like, what is this place? It'll feel like the home I've been longing for for all of my life because I'm in God's presence. Here's what this then says to us. In the same way that we are loved by God, in the same safety, and the same love that casts out fear that God has done for us, we create, listen, we create that safe place for other people. It's like this. I imagine it like this. Uh, We're coming up on the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, and many of us will be around family. And there's good and bad with that. There's no perfect family. And probably for all of us, there's somewhere on the spectrum. For some, there's more good than bad. For others, there's more bad than good, but it's somewhere uh, on the spectrum. But I think for all of us, deep down wherever your family is on that spectrum, there's a deep down longing that we have for a place That's home and a place for belonging. And so can I just create a picture that none of our families perfectly live up to, but can I just create a picture of what it's supposed to look like? Maybe that inspires us to then work to create that for our families. And work to create that for the people around us. Imagine you bring your family and you go home. And you pull up to that house and flooding back or, or maybe that apartment or a townhouse or the condo or wherever. You pull up to that place and flooding back are so many memories. And you walk in the door. You don't knock because you're always expected, always welcome, always belong. And you open the door, and immediately maybe the first thing that you sense, whether you're looking for it or not, or or it's registering not, is just all of the smells. And it's so beautiful. It's not just that the smells are necessarily good smells or bad smells, but it's beautiful because it's familiar. Maybe it's um, the cologne that your father wears, or maybe it's A combination of the the recipes that your mom typically makes. But you walk in and those smells, the familiarity of it just washes over you. And immediately, already before you've seen a soul, you know that you are in a safe place, place where you belong. When you walk in with your family, everyone gets up and comes to the door because it's an event. Even if you were just there yesterday, it's an event. And they all come around and there's this mob and people are being kissed on the cheek and hugged and, and, and uh, people are squatting down to talk to the kids. And maybe you're, you're part of that family or maybe you married into that family. It doesn't matter. You're now part of that family. And so if you're a part of that family, you belong. And you walk in and you have immediately refrigerator access. You go open the refrigerator and there's so many things that not only communicate that you belong, but there's so many things that communicate that you're known. Maybe there's pictures from way back in your childhood that you kind of wish they didn't still have out, but it reminds you that this is a place that you're known. And when you look inside the refrigerator, there's the things that were bought with you coming in mind. It's your favorite food or that favorite meal that was made just for you because not only were you expected, you were wanted. You're valued. They're glad that you're there. And as you sit around, it's not a place where, every single, where just a few people take care of everyone else. No, it's a place where everyone pitches in and takes care of each other. And in that place, this is a place where everyone can share their victories and know that everyone else is excited for those victories, not jealous or envious, not comparing each other. Man, no, this is the place where your victories, you can really share them with each other. It's also the place where you can share your defeats and share your struggles And no, that doesn't change how much you're loved and valued and welcomed and accepted. It's it's a place where you belong because you're you. And that group, that family is committed to you regardless of whether you're going through a good season or a bad season. That's a place when you walk into that house, that's a place where you know you're protected. And sometimes protection means from yourself. And even though it's welcomed and you're accepted and everyone loves you, and that'll never change, there's still a gracious, loving, kind, gentle accountability. Because safety means there's people in your life that are willing to graciously and humbly tell you the truth sometimes. And you know that that won't necessarily change the relationship long term, but they're willing to tell the truth. And it's a place where you feel safe because you know other people will be held accountable. And if one person's hurting another, you know there's people in that family that that won't be tolerated. It's a place where you're where you're protected. I don't know about you, but I, that's that's a space I want to belong. And not only do I want to belong there, man, that that's a space I want to cultivate. I want to cultivate that for my family, but I want to, but more than that, here's what this is saying. In this text, we are called brothers and sisters. Listen, Christian, we can't always create that in our blood families, the families we're in by our biological blood. But we're called to create that in our church family among Christians, the family that we have by the blood of Jesus. And because we are all loved like that by God, we should cultivate that with our friendships. You say, well, like I, I, I want that, what do I do? Can I just give you a few things, if you're, if you're taking notes, can you just write down? These are practical things. What does the type of love that casts out fear, what is creating safety in your friendships look like? Small groups and small group leaders, how can you create this? within your groups, friend groups? How do we create this as friends? What does it look like to create that safety? How does that look like? Here's the first one. It's a place that you are known. You and I want a, a place that we go and that we are known. We're, honestly, our weaknesses are known and our strengths are known. Neither one of those are forgotten. We, we, we're known for those things. Our story is known. The journey that we're on and have been on is known. Our dreams of what we long for in the future, that is also known. This is the, the space of intimacy. Friendships are supposed to have that kind of intimacy. This is where we grow to know each other. A safe place is a place where I am known. But here's the practice. If you want to have a safe place, and if you want to be known, there is a practice that we have to have the courage to step into. And it's the practice of vulnerability. And these, each of these practices, there's something that it creates that same dynamic in the entire group. When one person is willing to step into that practice, it creates that with the others there. When one person has the courage to do it, Others have the courage to do that. And the practice is vulnerability. When someone is willing to step up and say, hey, I'm struggling right now. And then the others respond with vulnerability. Hey, honestly, I'm struggling with that too. Or, you know, I was struggling with that. And I, the Lord's been so gracious to me. Uh, here's, I'm not an expert, but here's what happened in my life. When we create a place of vulnerability where we're actually not just sharing the cleaned up version of ourselves. But sharing ourselves, and we commit to that practice of vulnerability, we're creating a context where we are truly known, where I cannot just share the cleaned-up part of my story, but I can share my honest story. That is where we become a place that we're known. That's what he wants us as a family to do. Here's the, here's the second thing. What does a safe place look like? It's a place where you are accepted In other words, you have a a level of belonging there. It's a place where it's like, hey, we want you here. It's, um, we want you here not because you live up to our expectations. Not because you, it's not for performance reasons. It's not because of this or that. You belong here because you're you. That's what we want. We want a place that we walk in and there's familiarity and there's warmth. We want a place where we're known and a place that we belong. There's a practice associated with that. If we want places where we belong, the practice is hospitality. The practice is a willingness to welcome others in because the moment a friend group or a small group, the moment a group no longer welcomes in, then that group then has created kind of a uh, um an ingrown, selfish kind of demeanor. And in the end, that is going to, that's going to take that welcoming, hospitable spirit from each other. A hospitable environment, it's that family gathering, but if you're a friend of that person, you're welcome into it's that hospitable environment that serves everyone. Be ready to welcome people who don't think like you, look like you, act like you, have a welcoming stance of why, God, are you bringing this person in? There's, there's a good reason, I'm excited to find out. That practice of hospitality creates an environment where we're accepted. Here's the third one. What does a safe friendship environment look like? It's a place where we're valued. It's not just that we're known and it's not just like, yeah, you belong here. It's you're wanted here. It's not the same when you're not here. It's that, man, when, when, when you're, when you're not here, we miss you. And we follow up with you. And there's a practice associated with environments where you're valued. It's self-sacrifice. That's that's what a healthy, good family would do. Like, wow, so-and-so is going to come in. Like, we'll make space. The kids will sleep here and we'll sleep there. And this person sleeps on the floor. We make space for them. Self-sacrifice is the practice. And when a community has mutual self-sacrifice because they so value one another, it creates a culture of being valued, which is part of being a safe place. Here's the last one. A safe space that's casting out fear, is a space where you are protected. It's a place where you're known, where you're accepted, where you're valued, and where you're protected. This is the greatest way that we're protected is through grace. You know, there's a, uh, a practice associated with this, and, and we get this really confused in our culture. It's the practice of gracious accountability. Accountability, that's an act of grace to one another, especially when it's done in humility and love and kindness and gentleness. Because sometimes, a lot of times, we need people speaking truth in our lives. A group that has no accountability, then others will be allowed to hurt people and not be held accountable. There has to be gracious, loving accountability in order to have a space that's protective. Church, can I challenge you? These practices, vulnerability, hospitality, this practice of self-sacrifice, this practice of of gracious accountability, can can I encourage you to take a step today a step towards making a commitment in our friendships and to putting that fear away and to understanding the practices of what it looks like to enter in to a safe space in the same way that God has loved us and casted out fear and we walk into this, the warmth of that relationship. He wants us to create those relationships with one another. And to what such great lengths did he go to so that we might have this kind of relationship with one another. You know, in John 17, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed and he said, God, I pray that you would make them one like you and I are one. And you know what he walked through? Yes, he walked through the the whip and the nails and the crown of thorns, but you know what else he walked through? He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was falsely accused and misunderstood. He was lied about. He was denied. He suffered all of those terrifying relational wounds that we're so afraid of so that we could be a community that creates a safe space for each other. That's what he did for you, and he wants you to first enter into that relationship with him, and then out of the overflow of that safe relationship, he wants us to have that relationship with one another. I want to invite you in today, first and foremost with that relationship with God. So can I just lead you in a time of prayer? Would everyone just bow your head and close your eyes? If you wanna enter into that relationship with God where you find that loving, warm, safe relationship with God based on the work that Jesus did to take away all of your sins, that's offered to you. You can receive that work as a free gift. He loves you. I wanna invite you to begin that, that relationship with God today. It just takes, begins with just a simple prayer If you're ready to take that step, let me just lead you in that prayer. Just silently, right there in your seat, just pray this after me. Just say, silently, just say this to God. Say, Jesus, thank you for going to such great lengths to save me. Thank you for suffering so that I can be reconciled to God and be forgiven. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name. Hey, look, if that was your the step of faith you took today, I want to let you know we want to celebrate with you. So if you're watching online, go to cityrev.org faith. Maybe just grab your cell phone and go there. We're going to mail you a Bible if you're here and that was your prayer. You can go to the guest services. We would love to give you a Bible today to celebrate that step that you took. But church, we're going to close in uh, a song. And this song is a reminder of how when we come into the Father's presence, we find that safe refuge. There's no condemnation. We find that safety we're longing for. Would you stand with me as we celebrate that together? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.